This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A couple of things to know about David Bernhardt, Deputy Secretary of the Interior. One, he grew up in Rifle, Colorado, an experience, as we'll hear, that continues to shape him. Two, Bernhardt's tenure in D.C. hasn't been without controversy. Joining us for some perspective is Juliette Alprin. She is Senior National Affairs Correspondent for The Washington Post. And welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Getting to know Bernhardt is important given the scrutiny his boss, Ryan Zinke, is under and the fact that Interior is responsible for vast swaths of land in the West. You recently wrote a piece about Bernhardt, which gives a pretty striking example of his work ethic. He gets into a traffic accident, but rather than go to the hospital, cleans himself up and goes on to work. Even so, he has come under fire for some possible conflicts of interest that we'll talk about shortly. But who who is David Bernhardt, would you say? He is one of the true masters of the bureaucratic intricacies of managing public lands and other issues that are under the Department of Interior. He's 49 years old, has spent almost his entire career here in Washington, both working at the Interior Department under now two Republican administrations, as well as working as a high-paid lobbyist for roughly a decade. And he is someone who, while he doesn't have the top job at Interior, is extraordinarily effective in advancing President Trump's agenda there. He is a product of the West, but some of his choices seem to belie the ethos of the region. For example, he appears in favor of retooling the Endangered Species Act. He appears to want to overhaul existing agreements to take water from species preservation in favor of California agriculture. Would you say that this is more a matter of who he is or adhering to the wishes of the Trump administration? Well, that's an excellent question. And in some ways, it's a little difficult to answer in in the sense that when I put that to him, his argument is that essentially his view doesn't matter. Hmm. And it's simply – he is simply executing on President Trump's agenda, which he supports. That said, if you – look at his career, which I have, talking to people from all stages of his life, there's no question that on all these issues like the ones you've you've mentioned, he has only come down on one side. He he makes a very big distinction and argues that, you know, how he operated in the private sector is is separate from what he's doing now. But it's it's clear that he has consistently promoted policies that are quite conservative when it comes to public lands, species protections, and other issues. The water situation in California in particular, which involves the Westlands Water District, is interesting because it's indicative of the scrutiny that, you know, Zinke is under as well. I mean, Uh, The move would appear to favor one of Bernhardt's former clients. It came just two weeks after his recusal over the district expired, after that window of time had closed. There are other examples involving potential conflicts of interest for Bernhardt. Uh, What's the reaction to those conflicts in general? Well, certainly what you see from Democratic lawmakers and environmental groups is outrage. They are fiercely opposed to what he's doing. Congressman Jared Huffman from California in an interview with me called him a walking conflict of interest in his words. And they feel as if there's, there is an inherent problem with someone who represented, again, the, the 
nation's largest agricultural you know, district, water district, in now playing a key role in renegotiating how California and the federal government manages its water. Now, David Bernhardt, who is a skilled lawyer and loves to, you know, refer specifically, frame things in very legal terms, legalistic terms, cites the fact that, you know, both his ethics recusal on that client expired in August and also that if you look at the language of his ethics agreement, it pertains to when you deal with a particular matters affecting a specific client. And so he would he would argue that while you know, absolutely Westlands would be affected by anything he's doing out there because other parties are involved and it's not the only party involved. It, it does not fall under his, ethic, you know, his previous ethics recusal. And he would tell you that he waited the proper amount of time as well, I gather. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he is someone who consistently points to that, carries around a small card listing every potential conflict of interest he has. He he really tries to demonstrate that, you know, he's very aware of every restraint that he operates under. Yeah, this is one of the most striking visuals from your story, this card that lists some of the clients Bernhardt worked for when he was a lobbyist and a partner at the law firm Brownstein Hyatt Farber Schreck which has offices in Denver as well as D.C. Uh, That was before he returned to Interior. 22 former clients listed. What does he say about toting the card around and like what it means for the work he does? You know, it's an interesting question, and um, he he is the he and his his staffer provided me with the card in, in a conversation that we had, and you know while uh, he ha- didn't he hasn't specifically addressed exactly you know this 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 question what what I would say from from my sense of both talking to him broadly and spending a little time with him and talking to those who work for him. It is really to demonstrate that he knows exactly what his ethical responsibilities are, and that that you know he's he's not going to get caught up in in violations. I mean, it's very interesting. He where he carries it in his coat pocket, and it's with him all the time. But the fact is, he's memorized that client list, so he doesn't actually need to uh-huh. carry it. And so there is a public display involved there. Yeah, and a display to reporters like yourself, Juliet Alprin. We're speaking. Yeah. With her, she's the national affairs correspondent, senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post. And she has written about David Bernhardt, who's number two at Interior. He's the Colorado native. And with Ryan Zinke, the head of Interior, uh, under some fire these days, uh, there is some talk about Bernhardt ascending at that department, that agency that's so important to the West. I guess I'll just ask you point blank, Juliet, what's your sense? Do you think that David Bernhardt is going to become number one anytime soon? It's hard to say at this point. It's what is clear is Secretary Zinke has no intention of, uh, you know, of, of, of stepping down. So it would really have to come at the behest of the White House. Our most recent reporting indicates that there's still scrutiny and an ongoing discussion about what should happen. But for example, just today, Secretary Zinke fired off a very angry tweet aimed at the top Democrat on the House Natural Resources Committee who had published an op-ed in USA Today um, charging that he should that he should resign. Secretary Zinke responded 
by publicly accusing Congressman Raul Grijalva of Arizona of being an alcoholic and that he, in fact, is countering that he should resign. So you have a very combative leader of the Interior Department. This happened right before we started talking. And and it gives you a sense of what's going on. I, I, I think that it's it's hard to say whether Secretary Zinke will, will, will stay on. And I think there's a separate question, which is while it's possible that David Bernhardt could move up, there's also a tradition of the congressman picking a republic, uh, you know, a lawmaker from out west, and so you know, someone who's an elected official. And I, so I think that there certainly would be a broader conversation should Zinke leave. In any case, uh, you lay out in your story that David Bernhardt is currently very powerful at Interior, very influential. So it's not that Number Two has zero power whatsoever. And right. Let's, let's get back to this Colorado native. He grew up in Rifle in Garfield County not far from the Grand Mesa National Forest. In the 1980s, uh, that region, his hometown, I mean, there was like a virtual economic collapse because of the oil shale bust. Do you have a sense of what impact that had on him? It had an enormous impact on him from, you know, my understanding from both talking to him directly about it as well as to some of his close confidants. It really, it demonstrated to him that decisions in Washington could have a tremendous impact on people across the country. You know, in this case, uh, it was the Reagan administration's decision to cut off an energy department subsidy that essentially killed the oil shale business out there overnight. And he saw tons of his friend's parents suddenly unemployed as a result of that. So it gave him a sense, I think, of the extent to which the federal government could act for good or for ill when it came to people who were living in these gateway communities out west. That's fascinating. Just interesting to note that the Bureau of Land Management, an agency under Interior, is considering moving out west. And Grand Junction, which isn't very far from Rifle, is one of the places under consideration. Uh, Julie, Absolutely. Yeah, Julia, climate change has been in the news a lot lately, of course, with the president saying he doesn't believe a report issued by his own government. Uh, at one point in your story, David Bernhardt, number two at Interior, says he has no e- legal obligation to act on this report. And you quote him as saying, the last time I checked, there was a law that said I must provide a guy to help the Department of Energy write a report. Uh, Would it be fair to say this is another example of Bernhardt falling in line with President Trump? Sure. And I also thought that that was incredibly striking. In other words, you know, most people, including people who might have questions about what's driving climate change, the role of the federal government in addressing emissions, would certainly speak to the way climate change is impacting public lands, including national parks, monuments, you know, a whole array of uh, a array, array of, of things that are under the federal government and directly interiors control. And it was interesting that he made no mention of that in response to that question. I'll just say that earlier this week, we did a story about the many changes at Yellowstone in particular because of climate change. It's one of the most studied parks in the system. And scientists there say there's no doubt climate change is having an effect on that park and the larger region in the West. Uh, Why don't we talk about some other topics of importance to this area that Bernhardt plays a role in? I think of granting permits to access federal lands. I think the sage grouse is among them as well. What would you say is changing there under Bernhardt and Zinke? 
they are accelerating both the the speed in which drilling permits are being awarded in Colorado and other states out west, as well as the fact that they're they're putting a huge amount of oil and gas up for leasing, even when there's potentially some conflict with, say, other plans that are aimed at protecting species. So you see in areas where, for example, you have mule deer migration in Wyoming, they are they they put a number of leases up for up for sale, which directly address you know conflict with say the this incredibly critical migration corridor. And in that case, they took some of them off the auction block, but not all of them. After the governor of Wyoming protested, and what we're seeing you know kind of across the board is a push to open up as much land as is possible for oil and gas development, including potentially sometimes when it uh, conflicts with the sage grass, what you mentioned, an imperiled bird species, which, you know, exists in Colorado as well as several neighboring states. Indeed. Uh, Clearly, environmentalists not thrilled about what you've laid out there, but you quote someone, I, I can't remember quite who, a Republican in Congress who says, David Bernhardt is unlike anyone I've ever worked with at Interior. He actually gets things done. And when he says he's going to do something, he does something. So there's a feeling, at least in Congress, among Republicans, uh, that this is a guy they can count on. Yes, and that's Rob Bishop, the Republican from Utah, oh, who right. until until January will be will be the chair of House Resources Committee. And again, even I think it's worth noting, even his fiercest critics will identify him as incredibly smart and very adept at following through to their consternation. Thanks for being with us and sharing your reporting, Juliet. Thank you. Juliette Alprin is senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post. She joined us to discuss the number two man in the U.S. Department of Interior. That's Colorado native David Bernhardt. When he was on the campaign trail, candidate Trump said this about illegal immigration from Mexico. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Comments like that prompted a CU Denver professor to look into internalized racism among Latino college students. In other words, the more someone hears they're inferior, perhaps the more they believe it? The effects of this can be far-reaching, says Associate Professor of Counseling Carlos Ippolito Delgado, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ryan, for having me. I understand you surveyed about 300 Latino college students across the country, and you found that current events, I think of the migrant caravan and the way that Latinos are spoken about by some politicians, you found that that can hurt a young Latino student's sense of identity. Just briefly here, help us understand that. Yeah, so what we're looking at, we're trying to understand the degree to which experiences with racism, more direct in nature, um, as well as experiences seeing racism in the media, music, television, things of that nature. And the last factor we looked at was related to assimilation and the degree to which they completely wholeheartedly accepted U.S. cultural values. All of those seem to impact the degree to which folks internalized racist beliefs. Okay. You were looking specifically at undergraduates, uh, younger people. And what did you find and did it surprise you? Yeah, the two big things that stood out was that indeed experiences with discrimination 
seemed to kind of chip away at that sense of self and led to folks internalizing bias. The more they experienced racism in their interpersonal interactions, the more they internalized those racist notions. The more they believe that, as opposed to having the reaction, oh, that's not true. Uh, that is a reflection of the other person, not myself. Yeah. It, it, again, it comes back to that initial point you made that more often you hear it, the more it's in your presence and in front of you, eventually it starts to seep in and to soak in and to be accepted. We previously profiled a young Latina student named Ana Oaxaca. She's the first generation in her family to go to college and had to overcome that stigma and self-doubt. Like I thought only... Not to be stereotyped, but only white people go to college, only rich people go to college. And like I'm here like saying I'm Latino and I'm come from a low income household. So I was like, what's the point of going towards an education? What do you think when you hear something like that? That's exactly what we're seeing coming out of these findings. As a matter of fact, when we're looking at the types of biases that are accepted by these students, these participants, they were related to things like um, – less intellectual capability as Latinos, Latinos being genetically or biologically inferior to white folks when it came to intelligence. They believe that about themselves and their own community. Yes. Further, they believe that Latinos were more prone to criminality, uh, drug addiction, things of that nature, character flaws, if we would. That even Latinos were more sexualized, the sort of Latin lover stereotype. Yeah, the Latin lover stereotype was huge, but also more athletically gifted. So really great soccer players, for example. Okay. It's interesting because data from the Colorado Department of Higher Education shows that 22% of Hispanic college uh, students graduate in four years. That's compared to 37% of white college students who graduate in that same amount of time. So it's, it's possible that this has real world consequences for their lives. Definitely. And what the piece that's a bit understudied is exactly what those consequences are. Mm -hmm. We would argue, and my research would show, that it does impact the way they see themselves, the way they understand their culture, that kind of hatred of self. And in other ethnic communities, that's been linked to lower self-esteem, uh, less or poor health outcomes as well. Things like glucose levels, things like Higher abdominal rates of, fat. of obesity. Correct. In African-Americans, for instance, it's been studied. Yes. That kind of internalized racism has those effects. Exactly. And so we need to understand, my, my point is we need to understand what these impacts are for Latino undergraduates. So this research was largely sparked by the 2016 presidential election and some of the negative rhetoric about Latino communities since then. I wonder, though, when you began your study, were you seeing firsthand this kind of internalized racism in your own students? You know where I was seeing it more was in social media. Okay. Um, I think students, uh, for what it's worth under kind of this political correctness movement, know not to say things that would be controversial in a classroom. However, where they think they're in private spaces, even though we all know social media is far Anything from a private, private space, right? <laughs> Uh, they're more willing to share these opinions and share opinions that really cast the community as negative. Um, you know, even within my family, I, I joke, you know, I, I tell them all the time, you guys realize I study diversity, right? But the amount of ignorance and bias that is being uh, propagated by them is shocking. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a new study that looks into internalized racism among young Latinos and Latinas. 
Uh, my guest from CU Denver is Associate Professor of Counseling, Carlos Hipolito Delgado. And I'd like to understand more about how you uh, f- went about finding this. How do you, what, what kinds of questions do you ask to elicit honest responses? Yeah, it it was a kind of a mashup, for lack of a better term, of four big constructs and four existing kind of or three existing surveys and one that I developed on my with assistance with folks. Um, the first was around perception of discrimination, and it asks for folks uh, what kind of experiences they have around discrimination in their daily life, the degree to which they agree that they've had experiences with folks following them in stores, for example, being treated less fairly uh, because of their skin color or their last name, things along those lines. Okay. And then related to the media, how often do I see folks uh, that are Latino uh, depicted negatively in music and in television? And then uh, we looked at the things around acculturation and assimilation, the degree to which they believe dominant U.S. cultural values, um, individualism for the like. Uh, and then the internalized racism scale provided a list of stereotypes okay. about the Latino you, community. You rate how much perhaps they internalize right. those. Right. And they rate on a level of agreement. To what degree do you, is this a true statement about you and your ethnic community? Do you strongly disagree with this or do you strongly agree with it? How painful it must be to see a result that indicates some young Latinos think that they are inherently, maybe even biologically inferior In 2018. Well, I think we, it's funny, when we talked about the Obama administration, we talked about being in a post-racial society. And I think uh, our current president has reminded us of the fact that we're far from that. These biases and these biased beliefs have existed in the United States. And as I mentioned before, I think political correctness taught people how to hide. It didn't change people's ideas or mentalities around race and difference. But with the president being as vocal as he was, it allowed these folks that had these biased notions uh, to reemerge, to come out and feel emboldened in speaking this. And these things are going to have an impact on impressionable youth. Did you find that some youth were more vulnerable, if you will, than others? I mean, are there qualities of these young people that might make them internalize racism more? It comes back to what we call ethnic identity. The degree to which you understand, have sought out information about your ethnic culture and are committed to your ethnic culture. Youth that are strongly affiliated with their cultural heritage and their cultural background Uh are much less likely to internalize bias. Um, One of the interesting kind of outcomes too was they were more keen to pick it up in subtle places, like in the media. Folks that had the highest rates of internalized bias, the lowest rates of internalized ethnic identity or or sense of ethnic identity. Almost sense of self. Yes. Uh Were much less likely to pick up bias when it came up in the media. Uh, It would kind of pass it. I guess it's a kind of a passive acceptance, right? Whereas these youth that were more conscious or to speak in kids' current terms, woke. Woke. I knew you were going to say woke. (laughs) Uh Uh, Those that are woke are most likely to pick it up. And if they pick it up... Uh, are probably better skilled at dis- disproving it. Disproving it, displacing it, maybe. Yes, yes. All right, you want more research into what the effects are on these young people's lives, uh, for sure. Do you have any thoughts before we go about how how you prevent the internalization of this message? I think we need to talk about race. 
As a country, we need to talk about race, but definitely on college campuses, definitely on high school campuses, particularly with our Latino students. We can't pretend like racism doesn't exist or the discrimination doesn't exist or that by not talking about it, we're sparing people's feelings. The opposite is true. We need to actively engage in discussion about difference. And it may be uncomfortable. But that's what's going to get folks and allow folks to process this, to disprove these messages, to realize that bias isn't a negative indication on you. It's actually an indication of the ignorance from the perpetrator. Thank you for sharing your research with us. Thank you very much for having me here. Carlos Ibolito Delgado is a counseling professor at CU Denver. His new study, which was featured actually in Counseling Today, finds that some Latino college students are internalizing racism. Please be advised, this next segment does not contain adult language or content. But it is about those sorts of warnings before plays, dance performances, even radio broadcasts. Maybe you've heard or read more of these lately. New York Times theater reporter Michael Paulson just wrote about these so-called trigger warnings and how they've led to some soul-searching in the theater community. And hello again, Michael. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for being with us. You open your story with a warning sign outside a theater door for a play at the Denver Center. The sign reads, this production contains strobe lighting effects, sudden loud noises, theatrical fog haze, scenes of violence, adult language, sexual situations, adult humor, and content. Awfully thorough? Yeah. Awfully thorough. Why did you highlight it? Uh, the Denver Theater Center has actually been at the vanguard of uh experimenting with new forms of uh, advisories to theater goers. They've been very aggressive at um, alerting potential customers to what's going to be in shows they're thinking about seeing, uh, both through their website and emails and things that they uh, write and send to people's homes about shows and then even at the theater door. Uh, and one step that they've taken that I have not seen any other theater do, uh, they are now on their website, there are these pop-up alerts where you can hover over the trigger warning and find out at exactly what moment in the show uh, something potentially triggering might happen. So it might say 53 minutes into Act 1, there will be an explosion, for example. Huh. Uh, so you say that these warnings are earlier even than the door to the theater, that you can find this yeah. information online. I guess it's a critical question. Are these warnings being offered even before ticket purchase? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And of course, a lot of people uh, want to consider content as a factor in whether they decide to purchase tickets to a show. No. Uh, to borrow a phrase from an earlier segment in the show, is this because the Denver Center is woke? Uh, is it responding <laughs> to, to concerns from patrons? What What's at the heart of this? Yeah, so uh, this is happening all across the country uh, with uh, some 
controversy over it. There are some theaters that are declining to do this, but a lot of theaters are moving in this direction. And I think uh, they would say that it's partly as a form of customer service, simply a response to uh, demands from uh, some number of consumers who want to know more about shows before they decide whether they want to see them. Uh, but it's also clearly an outgrowth of a trend in our culture, uh, which I think we associate mostly with college campuses, mm -hmm. uh, which is that uh, people with a variety of issues from uh, health concerns, uh, you know, strobe lights can be problematic for people who are prone to seizures, to PTSD, uh, to any kind of sensitivity in between those things. Uh, they want to heads up if they're going to be in a situation that might be problematic for them. And many theaters have uh, decided that they want to accommodate that, that request. It occurs to me that these trigger warnings in the theater community come at the same time that many companies, including the Denver Center, are doing more immersive theater where you don't just sit idly in a chair and watch the action, but you become a part of it. Uh, actors, yeah. you know, coming into the audience or the divisions between stage and seating not really even existing. I, I wonder if that has something to do with this. Definitely. I think there are a few things changing uh, that make... Uh these kind of warnings more necessary for some theater goers. Uh, and one of them is, as you suggest, immersive theater. The Denver Center, uh, as your listeners probably know, is located downtown, and uh, they've been trying hard to diversify their audience. In part, uh, they have some money, some grant money, to try and reach younger theater goers. And part of what they've been doing with that is a little bit more immersive theater in um, in unexpected settings. So they're finding places around the city where they can do productions uh, that don't require going to the big traditional theater that feel a little bit more like a happening. But one of the side effects of that is that when you go to these kind of shows, often the actors are right next to you. They're all around you. You're sort of in the midst of the action. And they did a musical recently called The Wild Party. Oh, yes, I uh, saw Which, it. as the no. title suggests, you did. I did. Uh, so it was in a former airplane hangar that had been kind of uh, – they had built a set inside to resemble an apartment. And uh, it's a wild and crazy musical. But one of the things that happens in it is there's uh, sexual assault. And sexual assault is one of the things that some people find triggering. And uh, the theater, uh, it's the only time they've actually used the words trigger warning. And they decided that they needed to be particularly direct about what people might see in this case because some fraction of the people at that show were going to be right next to it. This attempted rape, I think it was an actual rape, was going to take place, was going to be depicted you know, within a few feet of the people who happened to be in that part of the apartment set. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with theater reporter for The New York Times, Michael Paulson, about the increase in trigger warnings before you go and see a show. Not only are there more of them, uh, but they're coming earlier and earlier for patrons. And I gather the pushback here in the theater community, Michael, is that one, I suppose there's a potential risk of, of maybe sanitizing uh, an experience or 
at the very least, removing the surprise, removing the kind of raw reaction that you have as a as a spectator. Yeah, I think, look, there are a variety of, object- of objections that somewhat parallel the debate that has taken place on college campuses. Yeah, There's right. the kind of question of whether by giving a heads up uh, about particularly uh, content, uh, thematic content in a show, theaters are essentially coddling adults and whether, uh, you know, America has become in some way too sensitive. That is one kind of critique of this whole movement. And then there's a kind of artistic objection. There are writers and directors who believe that theater ought to be unsettling and surprising and that theater goers who are adults ought to be open to being uh, challenged and provoked and that you ought to come into the theater um, willing to experience what the artist has to say uh, and and uh, respond to it in real time uh, rather than uh, kind of checking out uh, preemptively because you think you're uncomfortable with with certain forms of human behavior or dialogue. But I suppose that at least for the the web warnings, are they easy enough to kind of opt out of, to kind of dismiss? Yeah, of course. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. you know, even the signs at the door, the, the play that I um, began the story with was a play called Viet Gone, which was uh, uh, set in the context of the Vietnam War. And uh, there was a sign right at the door of the theater. And I talked to a bunch of patrons, and many of them had not even seen the sign and you know they don't yes there are plenty of ways that you can just tune out these warnings if you don't want them and i think what the theaters would say is that there's a handful of people for whom these issues are hugely important and they want to make it as easy as possible for them to get the information that they want uh in deciding whether to see the show and even if they decide yes i want to see the show and helping them uh, manage their reactions to the show Well, to wrap up, I understand there's been some strong response to your reporting. Uh, Would you share some of the feedback you've gotten from Uh, theater guards? Yeah. Sure. I mean, we live, as you know, in a world of uh, intense reaction. People have a lot of ways to express their opinions about everything uh, on social media, on comments on websites, uh, and even the old-fashioned letter writing. And there's been a fairly high volume of response to this one. And I would say... It's been all across the spectrum from people who think, uh, you know, that this is uh, an outrageous indication of, uh, uh, you know, the sort of softening of America that we've all become sort of wussy and that we can't handle anything uh, to people who think that the whole debate diminishes the serious uh, health concerns of people with PTSD and other similar issues and that uh, this is a legitimate and necessary uh, move to make theater more accessible to people who have uh, specific vulnerabilities surrounding specific kinds of issues. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Michael Paulson is theater reporter for The New York Times, and he wrote about the trend toward advanced trigger warnings in theater productions and the intense debate they're creating. Up next, a Denver singer-songwriter who had his music stolen from him. And I'm not talking copyright violation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. 
What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver singer-songwriter Anthony Ruptak was about to finish his debut album when someone broke into his home and stole his instruments, his songbooks, and the money he'd saved to make the record. Anthony, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And take us through the night you discovered you'd been robbed. Uh, it was a horrible night. Um, my, I was, I was working at uh, the open mic that I run at, at Syntax, and um, I was getting getting started. And my girlfriend called me. Syntax is a venue. In it's Denver. a venue. I'm sorry. And uh, she she called me, and I, she knew I was working, so I, I had an idea that this had to be bad news. And she she asked, uh, "Did I leave?" a window open in the room or did I uh, scatter a bunch of things around my music room? And I was like, no, absolutely not. And then she noticed that there were doors and cabinets open that weren't in the morning. And she immediately like got this horrible feeling that welled up in her. And I immediately left the open mic and drove back to the house. And uh, yeah, somebody had uh, come in through the side window of our house in the clear middle of the day and took a, a lot of things a lot of things <laughs> instruments yeah they took um, pretty much all of my instruments um several of which were borrowed from friends and uh they just grabbed a, a satchel that had my harmonicas and worst of all my my songbooks everything i'd written since like the age of 14 uh was oh. just gone so it was pretty horrible feeling no sleep that night and uh and the next uh, day <laughs> Uh, my girlfriend actually left the country for a trip that she had been planning. So I kind of just, I was just... You were there to fend for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and then they took the thing that artists never seem to have enough of, money. Yes. Okay. And so, you know, folks, never never keep your savings in cash. It's a pretty stupid idea. But I was uh, I was right at that point where I was ready to pay the studio for the uh, record that we'd recorded. And uh, that all that cash had disappeared. And I was I was basically due to pay like the next week. So... Gosh, the songbooks must have hurt especially bad. Yeah, still definitely does. Well, that could have ended the project, but support from the Denver music community got you back on your feet. You have finished this record. It's called A Place That Never Changes. my guest, Anthony Ruptak. So tell us more about how you were able to finish the record after losing the instruments, the songbooks, the savings. 
So, quite miraculously, um, I, I decided to put a, a post online just to say, hey, everybody, this, this happened to us. And um, people at this point had been already very involved in that um, so many different people had lent me uh, instruments f- for to make the record. With. Oh, were were loaned instruments stolen? Um, a couple, not not most that okay. I I had tracked most of what I needed to at that point and returned the instruments, but uh, as if you didn't feel crummy yeah, enough. Oh absolutely. My gosh. Okay. So um, I just put that post up, and then people in the comments were like, "You you have to you have to uh, put up a, a page where we can support you and help you and get this album back on track." Like a GoFundMe or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. And um, I I've I've never been that person. You know, like I, I've kind of prided myself on. Um, you know, working my job and paying for my, my albums myself. But um, then I was like, I, I, I can't finish this and, unless uh, I ask for some help. And so I, I put up a goal um, on the GoFundMe with the sum of the items stolen and, and the, the savings that were stolen. And in, in under 24 hours, it, oh, it, wow. it hit and exceeded that goal by just strangers, people, people in the Denver scene, just a, an immediate outpouring of, of love from the community here. And but people you didn't know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One person I didn't know donated the highest amount, somebody I've never met. Um, How much was it? It was 500 bucks. Wow. <laughs> Just crazy. Now, I've not done a GoFundMe before, yeah. unless you count our pledge drives. Um, <laughs> but do you get to keep the money above what you asked for? Yeah. It, it wow. basically stops when you end it, and uh, by the end of the day, it had exceeded it. So I was like, "I got to cut this thing off. It's already, it's already exceeded it." Um, and then the next, you know, the next day, I was able to walk into the studio and pay for the entire album just from the love of the people. And uh, on that note, I just want to say, every single person who donated even a, a dime or more is listed on the interior album credits of this upcoming record very um, cool because it, it wouldn't have happened without the grace of others you were certainly not looking to make bank with this but people were generous no doubt this is your debut studio album you play 16 different instruments on it yeah uh none of which you actually owned at the time exactly true yeah uh, i mean still you, don't <laughs> still don't well actually one guy left let me keep a sitar <laughs> is it unsettling to go into a studio with instruments that you hadn't played on before um, you know, I've been playing music since I was really little. Uh, I was homeschooled and had tons of time to just figure out instruments. And um, I uh, I wrote uh, parts for each individual uh, crazy bit that I had borrowed and learned it well enough to at least get it on the album. I'm not a professional in any of them by any means. But Where does one borrow a theremin these days? Oh, that is uh, courtesy of uh, Mr. Kurt Wallace from uh, the High Dive. <laughs> from the High Dive, yeah. <laughs> which is a bar and another venue in Denver. Yes. Uh, I know that you had to borrow an accordion. Yep. A mountain dulcimer. Yes, that was uh, courtesy of Mr. Chris Zacker of Levitt Pavilion, which is another big uh, new Denver venue. Yeah, out west of town. Yeah. A harmonium had to be borrowed. Yeah, and that was <laughs> that was the uh, harmonium of Andy Thomas's uh, wife, Jen, uh, from Andy Thomas Dust Heart, which is a band. So this is a, a testament to the fabric of the local music community. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this album tackles some serious themes. I think of the song Poltergeist. Plot for lay yourself down. 
Oh, those strings on that track. My goodness. What's the song about? Um, this, this is a multi-themed song. It uh, deals with uh, um, kind of several issues. Uh, one being uh, kind of loss of salvation or loss of self. Um, another one being um, when, I was, when I was really little, my dad started taking me hunting. And so the child's mind trying to cope with like taking a, taking a life or watching a life taken. Did you take a life when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, I started hunting deer when I was like 12. And uh, this is kind of a song about where to place that impossible uh, empathy and sorrow that you feel when something like that happens. Um, and then it also, uh, as I was writing it, um, a lot of different uh, school shootings were happening in the country. And so it's, it's also a comparison of that child uh, holding a gun, uh, doing something traditional like hunting, and then the comparison to what's happening so frequently today, which is um, a child holding a gun in a school. That's a lot to weave in one song. Yeah, that's why it's seven and a half minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Streets of Gold is yeah. another track on this new album, Anthony Reptak. It's inspired by your work with refugees in Denver. Uh, before we hear it, maybe tell us how that experience shapes the song. Uh, I wrote this song the first day uh, we all started hearing about um, the administration trying to deport dreamers and trying to end the uh, DACA act. And, uh, that just kind of crushed my soul hearing it. You know, I was listening to, uh, your radio station and uh, the first day that that was announced, uh, I couldn't believe, uh, what I was hearing. Um, considering I, I work with, uh, uh, refugee families and kids and, um, and I've seen so much humanity and so much love and so much light in uh, the people that I've worked with. Um, and to to imagine uh, demonizing groups of people in any certain way or to imagine uh, placing any people group below another just seems absurd to me. So I had to write a uh, response song to it. Are you angry in this track? It sounds a bit like you might be screaming. Yeah, I'm incredibly angry. Um, any anyone who's uh, seen any of our live shows, you'll you'll hear me shouting quite a lot. And um, this is that is, good for your voice? It's actually how I warm up my voice. I just okay. scream and scream. <laughs> Some people say. I think I had to do vocal warm ups that were "I love my mom." You <laughs> you scream. 
Yeah, it's a different approach, and uh, I just tell whoever I'm with, hey, can you close your ears for a second? We're on our way to the show, and i got to get some crud out of there. <laughs> but, talk, talk to me a bit about your vocal quality, especially on this record. Um, there's an, I don't quite know if the word otherworldliness hmm. to it. The is, it's not, is it processed at all? It's not processed at all. All it is is uh, doubled. Um, it's double. Uh, so I just sing over it twice. Um, Tell me about choosing that layering. Uh, well, I, I'm a huge uh, Elliot Smith fan, and I'm also incredibly uh, unconfident in my own uh, singing. So I think it helps <laughs> helps me kind of if, if you put two kind of wavy lines together, you know, they kind of <laughs> they, they kind of match up a little bit in the middle. You're insecure about your voice. I just don't. I don't I'm know. not insecure about your voice. <laughs> I've been enjoying these tracks. That's great to hear, man. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's easier for me, and I like the uh, I like the crisp aesthetic that it adds to the record. And it kind of sets the lyrics on top of everything else. We started this conversation talking about open mic nights in Denver, and you got your start at venues like Meadowlark, Mercury Cafe. We only have about thirty seconds, but are, are those good training grounds? I'd say the open mic is an invaluable uh, a resource to any musician trying to start out and 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 uh, enter into a scene. Okay, thanks for being with us, Anthony. Nice thanks to meet you. Me, Ryan. I sure appreciate being here. Anthony Reptak performs December eighth at Denver's High Dive to celebrate the release of the new album, A Place That Never Changes. He also mentioned to us offline that he's a fifth generation Coloradan, and his great uncle Anthony, for whom he was named was a demolitions expert who worked on the Eisenhower Tunnel. I didn't know where to get that in, so we did it here at the end of the show. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner.